Welcome back to the program. Some people have jobs that are very disconnected from the realities of everyday life. Engineers, perhaps, land use attorneys, the proverbial butcher and baker. But my guest Daniel Jones' job is inescapable from daily life. As the editor of the Modern Love column in Sunday's New York Times since 2004, Jones is perhaps the reigning expert on love, relationship, and why, in the words of Woody Allen, we all need the eggs. Daniel Jones has edited the Modern Love column since its inception in October 2004. He's the author of the previous books, Modern Love and The Bastard on the Couch. It is my pleasure to welcome Daniel Jones here to talk about Love Illuminated, exploring life's most mystifying subject with the help of 50,000 strangers. Daniel Jones, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. It's great to have you here. I want to talk a little bit about the origins of this column, because could you ever have imagined at that point that this would be something that people would grab almost first thing on Sunday morning as as kind of a ritual? Uh, yeah, I had no idea that, you know, where we would end up with this column. This, this began as a result of uh, me and my wife doing his and hers essay anthologies, and hers was called The Bitch in the House, and mine was called as you mentioned, the bastard on the couch, and the the style editor of the Times want you know took notice of those books and wanted to include material like that in styles on a weekly basis and approached us about editing it because he liked the work we'd done and we didn't even think it was such a good idea at the time. I have to say, <laughs> <laughs> thought well, who you know who would read that? Why does that belong in the Times? Why does that belong in styles and um, but you can't say no, and we, you know, we're excited about it. I ended up doing it as a solo job because it was really a one-person job, not a two-person job. And my wife had a novel that she was working on, and you know, even at the time, I was like, "How long do, do these columns tend to last?" And uh, the, my boss said, "Well, I don't know, one year, three years." And so now we're coming up on ten years, and it seems to be more popular than ever. Talk a little bit about how many submissions you got early on versus how many you get today. What what I get today is uh, about 5,000 or so a year, um, which means the chances of publishing any in any week are about 1 in 100. Um, and it took a while. It took you know, probably three or four years, five years for it to get to that level um, where it's pretty much stayed since then, although with all the, uh, the radio shows like yours and the TV shows that I've been doing since the publication of this book, Love Illuminated, the, the submission level is now increasing <laughs> again. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if this is good news or bad news, but I'm, I'm starting to fall hopelessly behind at my day job. There is a sense, I suppose, that after reading so many of these stories about misbegotten love, successful love, I mean, just all of it for, for so long, and we'll talk about some of, some of the more popular ones, that it would make you cynical in some respects, has it? It has not made me cynical. It's actually had the opposite effect. It's, it's made me feel more empathetic to, um, to what people are struggling with. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's um, one depressing aspect of the job uh, and something that wears on me is saying no to people all day long, even though what they what what they're submitting is often the most important story in their lives, the most painful story in their lives, what they've struggled with more than anything else. 
and I'm, you know, giving giving the piece thirty seconds or five minutes, and then saying no, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it, it it makes but but the exposure to all of these um, these lives makes me feel like wow, what what people go through, you know, and what they are willing to brave for relationships and for love it can be so impressive sometimes, you know, much more people take such risks with their hearts that I never would, <laughs> or at least I seem to ha- haven't in my life in the past. Um, so yeah, it's, it's had the opposite effect on me. There's an element that they all, not all, but but a vast majority start out in people's stories and in people's lives, they begin with a kind of fantasy about these issues, and then it turns into reality and hard work. Exactly. You put your finger on on the arc of love in America today. Um, that what I, you know, people struggle more than anything with the idea that love, uh, when you find it, and when it. People talk about, you know, it, it just clicked with someone finally, and and people talk about soulmates, and there's this idea at the beginning of relationships that when you do find it, it's going to be natural, and it's going to be, not, if not easy, um, then at least uh, simpler than relationships have been in the past. Um, and that the soul, when you find your soulmate, that's, that person will get you on a very deep level and if they don't, um, and you have disagreements and fights and all that, then they're not your soulmate. And what what I see people come around to over and over is that um, that, that this is life. You know, that this that that, that love is complicated. Uh, that just because you're fighting with someone doesn't mean that that person isn't right for you. Um, and yeah, the gritty the gritty sort of reality of how love gets tested and our relationships get tested. Um, we start out with this with this idealism about what love and long-term love especially is and gradually begin to accept and understand um, its complexities over time. In that sense, do you see the column as a kind of counterweight to happily ever after, a counterweight to, you know, the proverbial princess bride? I do, I do. I, feel, I, I, I am hopeful that it's a that, that the, the column represents um, reality in a comforting way. You know, to know that people are going through struggles. There's so often people feel like um, if they aren't living the fantasy, and these days the fantasy gets propagated in more places than ever, especially on Facebook. You mm-hmm. know, where you're only right. you're only reading about people's. Um, successful vacations and happy pictures and all of that, and everyone thinks that they're having a miserable time. They're the only ones. Um, and you know, it's interesting. I had two college essay contests in which thousands of students sent in their stories about love and expectations for long-term love and relationships. And what they cited more often than any other influence on how they viewed future long-term love were Disney movies. And it came up again and again that the Disney movie, despite what they saw going on all around them, um, the Disney movie version of of long-term love is what they somehow expected for themselves. And to what extent did that set themselves up for failure in many respects, or certainly for disappointment initially? Yeah, this is what I explore in the book. I, I, this is this is what we do, and it's it's a relatively 
new phenomenon because marriage and long-term relationships used to be much more about practicality and sharing the workload or working the farm together or raising children while one person had an income and all of that. And we've, we've come into romantic love as being the kind of, the kind of love we seek now and, and what we look for in a long-term relationship. So if, if a relationship and marriage is not about practicality and not as much about complementary um, you know, abilities, then, then all we're reaching for is that, that sort of elusive quality of connection. You know? And it's a high bar. It's a high bar for a lot of people to think, well, if we don't have passion for each other and we don't have this sense of, you know, of love and deep connection, then what, why would we be together? Because there's not a whole lot of other reasons to get married these days or to have long-term relationships unless it's, you know, some something called love. And yet, no matter how modern the stories get, no matter how accepting and non-judgmental and open people are in these stories, it comes back repeatedly over and over again, regardless of generation, regardless of time, to this desire for that single bond, that single connection, marriage in many cases. It, it seems to be, yeah. It, it, and it, one thing that has, has changed dramatically just in the past 10 or 15 years is what, what is a family and what is marriage and what, what does that mean and who can participate in it. Um, it's hard to know if, if, if the expectation that we're going to be with one person for our whole life, if that's something that we expect because that's what the culture tells us, or if that's something that we truly desire from within, if we were sort of separated from, from outside influences. Um, but one thing that I've seen change you know, more than anything else since doing the column is this acceptance of different kinds of arrangements and less judgment of different kinds of arrangements, whether it be, you know, a divorced couple continuing to live side by side and vacationing together and raising their children together and including, you know, maybe a third, uh, a third parent member from um, the, the one of the the parents has taken up with romantically and all of these sort of mixed up arrangements um, that are new and used to be people sort of had to feel ashamed of or whatever. Those, those kinds of arrangements are becoming much more accepted these days. Do you have an element or have you over the years of reading these letters, a sense of almost voyeurism in really seeing so deeply into people's personal lives? Uh, yeah, there is that sense, and I think that's what the readers feel mm-hmm. as well. Um, it's an odd, it's an odd um, sort of positioning to have a column where someone is is confessing the intimate details of their lives in a forum that's so public. Um, you know, the voices often sound like uh, as intimate as if they're your friend sitting across the table in a coffee shop telling you these stories about their lives, but instead they're telling telling the story to, you know, uh, upwards of a million and a half people, if, if that many people are reading, reading the column. Um, so it, it's, it, it's interesting, but I, I think that is what the power of storytelling um, in, in changing people's opinions about situations they might not understand, 
you can read a lot of news articles about, you know, maybe someone who's going through a transsexual conversion <laughs> surgery and those sorts of things. But if you hear, and, and maybe you'll dismiss it if you think about it in the abstract, but if you hear the person who's going through it talking about it, uh, it can have a far more impact on, on how you view people in those situations. What does it say about our culture that people are willing to reveal such intimate details and tell these stories in such a public way? I think our culture has changed dramatically in that in, in that um, respect, and part of it is due to uh, how social media has changed the way young people think about what a diary is <laughs> and what what a confession is and you know i have i have kids who are teenagers and they've grown up with a permanent sense of audience for whatever they do and this is new you know this this is new and it's it's also creeping up into um people people in midlife and people who have blogs and there's so much content out there of people's stories because it's it's so shareable. It's so easily shareable. And we, we go about our lives thinking, well, how many likes did I get on that? And how many people gave me the thumbs up on my Instagram photo? <laughs> and there's such a competition for people's attention that it almost demands this, this reveal, this level of, of, of how, we, how much we reveal about ourselves and how much we share about ourselves. One of the things that, that's so interesting, given the longevity of the column itself at this point, is the way the culture has impacted the column, but also the way the column has impacted the culture. Yeah, I'd like to think that's true. We, um, I think over time and over the years, the Modern Love column has created its own material in a way because the people who write for it are overwhelmingly the people who read it. And when you read stories that are that... Um, that confessional and that plain-spoken, because they're in the newspaper, they have to be very clear and plain-spoken, which is the newspaper style. And inevitably, people think, well, I, could, I, I should tell my story. I have a story like that. It prompts you to think about your own life and your own revelations and what you've come to understand and maybe lessons you'd like to share. Um, it, it prompts that in readers and many of the people I've published would not consider themselves to be writers. They were people who had a story, they read the column, they thought they wanted to share their story, and in many cases they were remarkable stories. As the editor of the column, when you read through all the submissions, do you, have you evolved an instinct as to what's going to be popular, what's going to get attention, what's going to be effective in the column? Yeah, I've gotten a much better sense of that over the years, and you know, mostly what, um, because I, I also pay attention to how columns are received and how people talk about them um, on Twitter, or how they talk about them on Facebook and all of those venues. You can see how um, people are responding to stories. But mostly when I'm, when I'm immersed in uh, hundreds of stories every month, uh, I end up having a very high... Uh, threshold in terms of getting bored <laughs> and i just it, it really if, I, I know that if, if i'm reading you know 120 stories in a day which is what i sometimes do 
And one story makes me keep reading past the first few paragraphs and all the way to the end. Um, I know that if, if it can overcome my propensity to get easily bored, that it will definitely keep readers going. And did you know then that the Shamu story, which I'd like you to talk about, was going to be the most popular? <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, this, <laughs> this story was, um, it sort of hit the trifecta of having humor, of having uh, advice, practical advice, but that was very fresh. This is a woman named Amy Sutherland um, who wrote an essay, I guess it was back in 2006, that was titled, What Shamu Taught Me About a Happy Marriage. And she had been uh, writing a book about how they train exotic animals at a place like SeaWorld. It was in San Diego. And she noticed that a lot of these techniques, usually which had to do with with uh, giving animals treats to encourage them towards certain behavior or luring them away from bad behavior or an area where they shouldn't be and getting them to, uh, to do whatever the trainers wanted. It was all through treats and encouragement and these sort of psychological games. And she thought, well, I wonder if that'll work on my husband <laughs> who, who doesn't clean up after himself, to my liking, uh, who bothers me in the kitchen. And she used these exact techniques of redirection and, and treats. Uh, an example was he, he used to come into the, into the kitchen area where she was cooking and get in the way and sample from the food. And she started during mealtime providing <laughs> chips and salsa, but putting it at a table on the other side of the island. And she changed his behavior pattern. She could see him come in, start to head toward her, and then redirect toward the kitchen table. <laughs> And start eating the uh, the chips just as though he were a dolphin, you know, following <laughs> following the mackerels. Um, this column was incredibly popular. It was the most at the time. It was the most emailed uh, article ever to appear in the New York Times. Um, that's a list that turns over pretty much daily, and it stayed up there, I think, for three weeks in a row at the top. And there's a movie in the works and a book that came from it. And yeah, it was just incredibly successful. And 75, 80% of those submissions that you get are from women. Talk about that. That has held true pretty much since the beginning. Um, yeah, about, about what you said, 75 to 80% come from women, the rest from men. And, um, it's, and that's about what the ratio of what we publish in the column is. And people ask me what that says about men and women, and I'm not really sure I have an answer for that, except that women seem more eager to explore relationship issues um, in print, um, and men seem more uh, cautious and a little bit more in fear of being judged in terms of what they might say about relationships, and women don't seem to have those worries to the same degree. The columns that have been published, do they run pretty much along the same percentages? Of men and women? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, I've found over time that, that about one in a hundred stories is publishable, and that would include from any demographic. So you know, if, I, if I have, it, it runs broadly for men and women, but it also runs within certain groups. So if I... I've published very few people, for example, who are over 75, um, but it would really take about 100 submissions 
from people over 75 before I'd really have one that would be publishable. It almost runs true in, in, in every group. When you started doing this back in, in 2004, it was pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter, even pre a lot of online dating. Talk about the impact of technology on how people view their relationships and how they evolve. Mm-hmm. It's striking. There, there's so many impacts of technology, and it's so prevalent that we almost don't notice what it's doing to us. Um, Technology is so alluring, and our iPhones are so, and iPads are so alluring, and they really capture our attention. So many of us spend all day on, on one or the other or all of them. And there, there's several impacts. I mean, with online dating, uh, it, it has exposed us to so many people, and almost all of them strangers. So if we live in a city, we may have several hundred thousand people who are making themselves available to us, and we don't know a single one of them. That's an incredible change from how things were pre-internet dating. You, you had to know people. <laughs> you, you might run into people at a bar, but that was more the exception than the rule, and the people you went out with you basically knew. Um, so two things. It leads us to have to, have to narrow, narrow down the pool, which we inevitably do by answering all kinds of questions and following algorithms, and we end up ruling out all kinds of people who, by categories, who we don't think we'd get along with, and it makes us suspicious, and it makes us cautious, <laughs> which is, you know, often not the best stance to approach dating. You should be, you know, trusting and open-minded and willing to take risks. That's not, that's not what, um, what online dating does for us. And talk a little bit about the moral and ethical dilemmas that people get into in these areas, many of which have made their way into stories in the column. Well, what, what online relationships do to us, as I was talking about before, it's so alluring. We flirt online. You know, I've seen, seen relationships develop over Twitter where someone will retweet someone's tweet and then they'll favorite that that person's tweet and then they start they start following each other and then they start communicating off of twitter they may live you know half a country apart um it may seem very impractical that this flirtation would lead to anything but it's that sense of impossibility that is what allows it to steamroll into something that really does mean a lot um i see an awful lot of people who fall are falling very quickly into deep emotional connections with, with others online, specifically because they didn't think anything could happen. Um, and when you don't think anything can happen, you let down your guard and something happens. <laughs> you get much more, much more connected than you realize. And you think it's a deep connection because we, we tend to think emotional and intellectual connections are deep, whereas a physical connection, sex, is shallow. But that's just not true. Um, all of these connections are equally important, and they all need to sort of progress together and grow together. And what technology is allowing us to do is separate ourselves, partition ourselves into dif- different parts and have relationships that are just emotional with someone online, 
or just physical in the case of a hookup where you don't have any emotional connection and you're just having sex. I wonder if that speaks to a deeper inherent loneliness that is in the culture itself. Well, I do think technology, and it, it, it makes us lonely, feel lonely with those who are physically around us. Um, I mean, how many times do you hear the story of uh, the person who would rather be on their laptop, even if their lover is sitting next to them, and you get, you know, irritated if you're trying to surf the internet and a family, your, your child comes into the room and interrupts you. Um, It fosters, because it's so tempting, um, it fosters a sense of of aloneness, of wanting to be alone uh, when you're physically with other people and feeling like you can get that sustenance and that connection through the device. Um, And, you know, a lot of people do. A lot of people do seek that kind of connection through the device, often because it's more controllable, you can just click it off and the relationship is over. Whereas if someone's in the room with you, you're forced to engage on their terms. Talk a little bit about how it's impacted your own life. I mean, reading these columns has must have had an impact on you and your relationship over all this time. Uh, it has. Uh, the, the, it's hard to quantify exactly what it's done. And whenever I try to claim that... Uh, I've learned a lot about relationships, and my wife hears me. She sort of rolls her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I, still, I still apparently have the same you know, shortcomings that I've always had. Um, but, but again, what it does for me in larger volume is, the same, is this, the same impact that I think it has for readers. It makes you so aware of what, what real relationships are like, unvarnished, um, and how... Real love can involve um, a lot of trials and tribulations and struggles, and it doesn't mean that just because you're you're struggling, you know, getting along with someone over a lifetime is a hard can be a hard thing, and um, and when you witness that in all kinds of different forms, I think it makes you look at your own relationship um, with a sense of you know of, of understanding and maybe greater patience and uh, greater empathy for what the other person is going through. Daniel Jones, the book is Love Illuminated, exploring life's most mystifying subject with the help of 50,000 strangers. Daniel, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, thank you, Jeff. I had a great time. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.